0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about education policy and the ways in which numbers, data and digital technologies are increasingly shaping how our education systems are governed and how really important education decisions are being made. To do this, I sat down for a chat with Professor Sam Seller from the University of South Australia. Sam is well known for his work around the OECD PISA tests and other standardised testing such as Australia's NAPLAN assessments. But he's also well known for his recent work on algorithms, artificial intelligence and what he and colleagues are calling synthetic governance of education. Before working through these different developments, I started by asking Sam to reflect on the key themes and issues and concerns that he sets out to address in his work. So regardless of the specific topic, what are the core questions that drive Sam's research and writing?
1: I think the thing that drives me is an interest in opening up new perspectives on education and society. So across my work, I've taken um, a range of different um, perspectives on different empirical issues in education from pedagogy to aspirations to datafication and digital platforms more recently. But I think it's that philosophical interest that really underpins all of my work. I don't get to read as much now as I would like to, but reading's always been central for me and I've always been excited by the possibility that the next book or article that I read could change the way that I see things. And so I think it's that desire to find a new angle on issues or problems by working with new concepts that's a common thread. And I think there are also probably three problematics that animate all of my work as well. Um, A concern with ethics, a concern with affect, and a concern with time. And I've always been drawn to phenomenological or post-structuralist philosophies, and they're common concerns for people working in those traditions.
0: And so do you find yourself reading outside of the education research literature? Because those concepts are widely discussed in philosophy, psychology, geography. So do you find yourself reading quite eclectically?
1: I think I probably read outside of the education literature more than I do within education. Mm. And I feel badly about that sometimes, you know, am I being a good colleague? You know, I try and read people's work as much as I can. But I think that interest in new concepts does push me to look beyond education to other fields, particularly philosophy, cultural studies, media studies, for work that's really at the the cutting edge of contemporary thought, and then to try and bring those concepts back and work with them in relation to particular empirical problematics in education.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I do the same. You're kind of bringing ideas into into education. So let's go through some of the the areas that you said you've been looking at. One of the things that really interests me is this idea of data in Mm -hmm. education. And you've written a lot about datification and data. Before we deep dive into this, just some kind of basic definitions. I mean, when we talk about data, what data are we actually talking about? Because, I mean, there's so much stuff in education now. You've got Naplan, PISA, algorithms, AI. So when you talk about data, what are you actually talking about?
1: Yeah, this is increasingly become a problem since I started working on this issue nearly 10 years ago, which was at a time when we were just on the cusp of big data, algorithms, digital platforms. And so what the question of what you're referring to when you f- refer to data has become more and more difficult to answer. Um, I think the most basic definition that I've always worked with is that you know data is everything that is available to perception. But that gives us a very Expansive view, and then I was—I um, I liked the way that Rob Kitchen and Martin Dodge talked about capture because that starts to narrow things down. Everything that we could perceive is data, but we only ever capture some of that data. And now we capture that not only through our own perception but through sensors and other technical systems for recording data. And in the process of capturing it, we translate it into information.
0: And it's also this idea that data are not necessarily stuff that's given, but it's stuff that's taken.
1: Exactly, and I think that's why the concept of captor is useful. What data do we choose to take and what do we miss? And I think that um, you know that, that's what really interests me. As we see more and more approaches to capturing data and making use of that data in education, how does that change um, what we focus on, what we overlook – how does the analysis and aggregation of that data change the way that education gets done?
0: And people talk a lot about datification. And I guess this is another word that's probably needs a definition before we start talking about it. So, I mean, at first glance, it's everything being turned into data. But I mean, have you got a more nuanced take on what datification is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always begin with that definition. I think it's, it's a helpful and straightforward one. Um, but I'm primarily interested in how things get translated into digital information. Um, and there's the new affordances that that creates in education. So I would argue that datification in that sense is the basis for many of the most important changes happening in education today. The rise of ed tech, the rising use of digital platforms, they all depend on having larger and larger volumes of data. So when I think about datification, I think about the production of that data. The move from um, paper and pencil tests to computer adaptive assessments that are increasingly built into digital applications, that opens up a whole range of new possibilities for assessment, and then in turn, pedagogy and curriculum. So again, it's how does that datification of assessment data start to shift the conditions of policy and practice in education. So for me, an interest in datification entails um, asking a series of questions, such as what data get captured, how are they translated into information? How does that information get stored, communicated and used? How do those process, processes change the cognitive and ethical conditions of education? Where do we focus our attention? What do we ignore? Um, and how do data get used to change the conditions for teaching and learning? And particularly, how are those changes affecting the professional expertise and autonomy of teachers? So in this sense, datafication for me is both the technical part of those processes but also a social process that affects how we're constituted as subjects and what we choose to do and why we want to do it. So
0: questions of affect, questions of ethics, as you said before. So you mentioned affordances and possibilities, and there's a big promises about what data could do. I'm quite interested in you. You also refer to the idea of problematic, seeing data as a problematic. So I mean, moving on from the big promises, what are you getting concerned about? What issues are there that? Um, Yeah, you're seeing. What critical concerns are you and others raising about data in education?
1: Yeah, look, I think there's no problem with data per se, but rather with what it enables and how it gets used. And I think, on the one hand, there's a set of educational problems that are being driven by datification. We've known for a long time that data driven modes of accountability can have pernicious effects in education. And I've always found the work of people like Stuart Ranson and Stephen Ball particularly instructive in that regard. So, you know, quite obviously datification changes what counts and what gets counted. However, I think we're now seeing that process or those processes having very widespread effects on the sustainability of the teaching profession mm. itself. So um, I think new technologies also risk diminishing or undermining teachers' professional expertise and autonomy. but. I think today the real issue is that data-driven approaches to managing education are taking the joy out of teaching, (laughs) and teacher shortage is a major issue in Australia today. So I think we're moving from a period when um, using data to manage teachers' work was seen as a site of contestation within the profession, something to push back against, to a period in which we'll have to ask, you know, will we even have a teaching profession? I
0: mean, there's lots of things that are sucking the joy out of teaching education. And I guess from a kind of sceptical point of view, a lot of people kind of say, isn't this all hype? I mean, there's a lot of talk about data and datification of education. But to what extent is data actually present in schools today and in classrooms today? Because there's the imaginaries from the big tech corporations Mm. and, you know, kind of critical scholars like yourself. But I mean, what's actually going on in the classroom? How much data is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... The hype, the hype is real, um, and I think a lot of the promises that are made are very deliberate market-making strategies that are designed to create um, the opportunities that edtech and other actors want to have in education. And I think there's um, most definitely a disconnect between that hype and the reality in schools and universities. So in um, one of my current projects with Janja Komjenovic, at Lancaster University, we're looking at digital platforms in higher education. We've been talking to investors, edtech companies, people in universities. And one of the things that's really surprised me is no one really has a good answer to the question of, you know, what's a new digital platform or educational technology that's truly disruptive or transformative and shows real promise? I think people are really grasping after that. Um, And so I think we're not seeing the extent of digitalization in education that is being talked about, mm. um, but that's not to say that there aren't, um, you know, a number of things happening in education that do have a serious impact. They're just not necessarily the more um, technologically advanced approaches based on machine learning or more complex learning analytics that often get spoken about.
0: Absolutely. And actually, I wanted to deep dive into a couple of examples from your recent work. And in fact, a lot of people would say the most kind of pernicious but also the most pervasive example of data in education are things like PISA and NAPLAN and standardised testing. And you've, you've done a lot of work on that previously. And I'm interested just kind of what's going on here from a policy point of view in some ways. I mean, you talk about PISA and its explanatory power to provide policymakers with better information. You know, And NAPLAN is kind of often spruiked as, as the same. So, I mean, from a policy perspective, how do you make sense of things like PISA and NAPLAN and, and the rise of standardised metrics and measures?
1: Yeah, the claim that PISA is providing greater explanatory power is not my claim. <laughs> it's the claim made by those who um, produce the assessment itself within the OECD, and it really describes their ambition to grow the usage of data collected through PISA, And what we've seen with PISA is its initial success back in 2000. um, And since then, a proliferation of the brand, really. PISA for schools, PISA for five-year-olds, PISA for adults or PIAC. And this is all an attempt to build on that initial success. And And that success, I think, was really founded on what often gets referred to as a PISA shock. The way in which the publication of that data... Changed the way that policymakers thought about the quality of their system. We all know that Finland performed very well in the first round of PISA, um, and Germany performed very poorly. And it was that poor performance in Germany and the shock that that created, which has ramified ever since um, and still has an impact on the way that German education is is governed. It was that ability to change the perception of policymakers that really gave PISA its power. And I think the OECD and others have tried to kind of build on that ever since to continue to have that impact. So that's really a kind of cognitive governance. Um, and I think in many ways, what attracts me to that phenomenon is my interest in, you know, how, how do perceptions get changed? How do people think differently about education problematics? Pisa's is clearly a very good example of, you um, a data-driven technology that has had that impact on how we think about education problems.
0: And coming back to your interest in affect, I mean, how people feel about the education and the atmospheres around education on a national level. You can see how PISA's impacted there. But, I mean, for a teacher who might say, what's PISA got to do with me? It's something that's happening a million miles away. You know, how do you think PISA is actually impacting in the classroom?
1: Um, In highly mediated ways. I mean, you're absolutely right. Some teachers know what PISA is, They'll have had students that have sat for the assessment in their schools. But it doesn't have a direct impact on teachers' work. But it does have a significant impact on systems. I, I think PISA is not high impact or high stakes for teachers, students, families, but it is for education ministers. And so it shapes the way that um, policy gets done at a high level within nations, And that then feeds down and does have an impact on teachers' work. And we can point to examples where, um, you know, the curriculum that gets delivered in the classroom, um, I'm thinking of Japan here, has changed as a result of the PISA assessment. So um, I have spent quite a lot of time in recent years trying to work with teachers to help them understand how something that feels quite distant and disconnected from their reality helps to shape that reality in very tangible ways
0: absolutely I remember being in a school once where they made the kids take their shoes off and the the rationale for this was well in Finland they take their shoes off and Finland's you know the best education system in the world so I mean yeah it's quite interesting how these very mundane things kind of uh, have much kind of higher level uh, origins flipping the flipping the script over to something that's in completely high tech I'm also really interested in your work on AI and algorithmic governance and algorithm. and this idea of you talk about synthetic governance as well when you talk about AI and algorithms. So I'm interested in your recent book where you've looked at this Australian policy unit, the centre, as you call it. I mean, so, so what were the centre doing with AI and algorithms and, and what does this tell us about education policy in the 2020s? Look, the thing that
1: really grabbed us in that project was the first visit that we made to the centre. And we sat down with a, a group of policymakers, but also um, business intelligence um, managers who were building a new business intelligence system for the center that was going to scoop up all of the data available um, within that particular jurisdiction and make, you know, ostensibly enable more powerful analyses that could inform policy. I think that was the first time I ever heard someone in that context talk about AI and using AI or machine learning to inform um, education policy making. And that just jumped out at us. Um, And I think that's really the reason why we became so interested in that example. Initially, we couldn't see much use of AI Mm. and or machine learning. It was embedded in the, um, the cloud systems that they were building their business intelligence capabilities on and there were some early experiments but nothing that you would actually describe as using AI. Um, But we went back a a year or so later and things had moved on further that employed a couple of data scientists and we could really start to see how um, using new kinds of um, data analytics methods experimenting with AI was shaping the way that they were able to think about policy problems and the kind of actions or interventions that they were able to make. And a lot of this was tied to prediction, trying to predict performance um, in a particular assessment based on future performance in order to enable teachers to make an intervention.
0: So in terms of your interest in time, then, there was a shift from kind of dealing with very kind of just, just at the moment issues to thinking when you talk about prediction, then I mean, what kind of timescapes are coming into play here with the introduction of AI?
1: The first example that really interested us was using demographic data in this jurisdiction and combining that with the data that the school system held in order to make predictions about where schools would be needed in 10, 20, 30 years time and making decisions about building or closing down schools mm. on that basis. And I found that interesting because you could already see how predictive analytics were having a very real impact on the geography of this city, for example. Um, but there are shorter timeframes as well. So another example was the use of um, assessment data in year seven to predict performance in year nine in order to predict performance in Year Twelve, um, at, you know, on the exams in that in that school system, and to make earlier and earlier interventions to try and improve students' chances of being successful at the end of schooling.
0: And to what extent were kind of p- the policymakers pushing back on this a little bit? Because you can get this kind of science fiction trope where you can kind of give a student their their final exam grades when they're five because you can predict how well they're going to do. This same with predictive policing, isn't it? Mm, Arresting people mm. before they commit a crime was there pushback from the actual kind of human policy makers? So hang on a minute, you can't really say that someone's going to get, uh, how they're going to perform at 18 based on their, their, their performance at five.
1: What, what was interesting, I mean, we, the way that we um, engaged with the participants in the centre didn't really enable us to talk to the higher-ups um, who were making the policy decisions. But what was interesting was there was a clear understanding of that of the problematic nature of those analyses mm. amongst some of the people in the centre, so that it's not that they were naively trying to achieve this without recognising that education is incredibly complex. You can never hold all of the variables constant, and so these predictions are always going to be, you know, um, highly uncertain. What was also interesting is that some of the analyses that they were performing were throwing up quite interesting things that policymakers weren't listening to because they had a predetermined idea about what ought to happen, and you could see how, yes, there are risks to bringing in, say, data scientists and different ways of thinking about education into these spaces, but also possibilities too, because they were starting to think in ways that I thought might be quite worthwhile to pursue, but not getting traction with policymakers who, you know, while they might claim to be evidence-based, don't necessarily look at the evidence if they've got a different idea in mind. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So there is a case for having a kind of more broader data imagination amongst policymakers and teachers. That's a really interesting take on it. And just before you finish talking about this, I'm, I, this concept of synthetic governance. I'm really interested about that. I mean, if you can just explain it a little further. And also, how is it fundamentally different to previous iterations of, of education governance? What's new here?
1: There's there's a really difficult problematic at the heart of that concept that we've tried to grapple with in our book for example and that is the relationship between cognition human cognition and what you might call machinic cognition so on the one hand you have to hold those two things separate for analytical purposes I think that's important but we're committed to a view that they're actually not separate that Um, Machine learning is really an extension of human learning. These are tools that we've constructed, they're not separate to the human, they're an extension of the human. So in some ways I think synthetic governance is a way of describing the hyphen that's so important there between the human and the machine. It's recognising that they've always been intertwined, we've always used different tools to inform our approaches to, to governance. But something important is changing on the machine side today that is shifting the nature of that re- relationship or accelerating it, perhaps. Mm. So on the one hand, it's about holding those two things together while acknowledging their distinctiveness. But then I think there's it's also about the ways in which that conjunction of the human and the machine changes the, let's say, cognitive ecology in which governance occurs. So it's not simply using digital data to make decisions, though of course that's part of it, but it's the way in which these systems will change the conditions in which policymakers think about problems. They make some data available, um, they occlude other kinds of data, they present data in ways that produce certain um, reactions, not always conscious, and we start to see a kind of modulation of the ways in which policymakers think and act, that happens in the synthesis of the human and machine, I suppose, which is what we're trying to drive at with that concept.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many ways you can see that panning out, which I guess leads me onto my final question. You've talked about the research that you're doing at the moment around platforms and AI and algorithms. What's bubbling up? What do you think you might be looking at in the next five years? Is there anything that you're just beginning to read about and think might be interesting for, for a future project?
1: Yeah, there is. Um a couple of weeks ago, I read um, a short book by Francois Bonnet, After Death, which is a really accessible overview of a whole set of problematics associated with cognitive capitalism, um, attention economies, and what you might call accelerationism the way in which new media and, and capitalism itself is kind of speeding up time. And what was really interesting to me in that book is, you know. For a long time now, I've been interested in um, time in the sense that datification drives prediction. We work with students on their aspirations. How do they think about their future? So a a focus on the future. What Bonnet is arguing is that we're increasingly being trapped in the present by new media and new digital technologies. We distract ourselves with these technologies. We're encouraged to think of ourselves as being um you know permanent we don't think about our finitude the fact that we are beings that exist in time and we also tend to feel certain things less and less nostalgia melancholy relationships to the past that i think are incredibly important for pedagogy but also relationships to the future that aren't simply predictive ones and i think if when if we're losing some of those um we're losing the ability to feel some of those affects then we lose some very important conditions for education i think mm-hmm. pedagogy is clearly about um, having a relationship to a past recognizing that we're not going to exist forever and the future is going to be the responsibility of others and then making decisions about how we relate to those others in order to hand down knowledge understanding ways of acting that can make um that might improve society and i think if we get trapped in a certain kind of presentism by new technologies that could have a really significant impact on education
0: which actually relates and this is a complete sidebar conversation but relates to the whole climate crisis and ecological i mean if we you have to imagine your own death in order to actually kind of think more creatively about how we can deal with things like climate crisis
1: absolutely i mean why are we doing nothing um because it, it feels like a problem that's still too far in the future even though it's already here i think the changes that are being wrought to the ways in which we understand ourselves in relation to time, um, yeah, to me that seems like a really interesting area in which I would want to extend what I have been working on, but perhaps you know take on some some new projects as well.
0: Excellent. Well, an incredibly apocalyptic note to end on. <laughs> Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk, Sam. It's been really in- you do really interesting work, and it's very interesting to kind of hear about it. Um, good luck in the future.
1: Thanks, Neil.